All right, if you could start making your way back to your seats, we're going to go ahead and continue with our service. So in terms of our scripture reading, we are, I'm not going to just start off by reading a big chunk of scripture. Um, we're sort of bouncing around uh, throughout uh, the book of 1 Samuel chapters 2, 3, and 4. And so that would be a little little long of a section to read all uh, at once right now. Um, but we'll be um, hitting a few different um, sections um, as we go through it. You can go ahead and turn there if you want to. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let me open this up in prayer and then we will uh, dig into it. Father God, we, uh, we again, um, we come before you, God, um, asking for your blessing um, as we enter into a time where we study your word. Um, God, as we... As the concerns of our world weigh heavy on us, God, we continue to pray for um, for your love and mercy to be shed abroad. God, that you would meet those needs as we've already asked. God, we God, we want to be connected to you. We want to be connected to your word. We want to live in such a way uh, and think in such a way and believe in such a way and love it in such a way, um, God, that um, we are able to navigate even... Um, the horrific things of our fallen world. God, we do that by knowing you um, through your word. And so as we open your scriptures, God, we ask um, that you would give us a picture, um, God, of your calling on our lives, um, God, of the consequence of sin, God, of the hope that we have um, even in the midst um, of the things that are happening around us. Uh, we thank you for this word. We ask that you shine a light on it, shine a light on our hearts, that we would understand it and apply it rightly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let me let me quickly, again, I, you may or may not, I don't know how aware you are um, uh, of the events that have taken place in, in the Southern Baptist Convention in the last um, week, but let me zoom in because our passage uh, here's what happened. So last week, um, as I posted this on Facebook, and some of you already saw the, the, the post that I made. Um, in Sunday school, we talked about the story of uh, the high priest Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, from the book of 1 Samuel last Sunday in Sunday school at Mother Church. And then later that day, the revelations of, of the report um, came out, and I could not help but seeing a providential connection between the story that we had read there and, and the events that had taken place. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back and revisit that text and kind of work through some of the things that I had already seen there. Um, so obviously we've jumped from Luke for a week, um, but we will return to Luke. But let me kind of just give you a brief, very uh, summary explanation of what's going on. So last Sunday, about this time, 
um, there was a report released by a third-party group called Guidepost Solutions. Um, The report was the product of an investigation that had been called for at last year's Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville. And that was to investigate allegations of of cover-up of reports of sexual abuse um, among the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee, okay, Um, specifically among their executive committee. So as a brief explanation, um, again, you may not be super familiar with the way the Southern Baptist Church works, but, but Southern Baptist churches, each church is autonomous. That is to say they operate independently by their own charters and bylaws. Okay, each church is separate. It's very different from the way more hierarchical denominations work. Um, but they enter into cooperation with each other um, through through sharing funds and resources and things like that to form this entity that we call the Southern Baptist Convention. And that convention is basically made up of 11 entities. Um, there are six seminaries. There's the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, Lifeway Publishing and Resources, and then a group called Guidestone, not to be confused with Guidepost, which is the group that did the the research. Um, But Guidestone basically does like insurance and retirement and and things like that, handles those kind of things. Then there's this entity called the Executive Committee. The Executive Committee is the fiscal and executive um, entity that runs the day-to-day operations of the convention basically. And so a very simple explanation, they're the ones that hand out the money um, that comes in from churches through what's called the cooperative program, which is this big sort of program where churches all over the country, Southern Baptist churches give money and that money goes into a pool that is then distributed to the entities. Okay. Um, The investigation uh, that was released basically revealed that the executive committee was aware of numerous instances of sexual misconduct and abuse was actually keeping track of those situations, but was not revealing that information to churches, um, even when that might cause uh, abusers and predators and and people who had been even convicted in some cases of sexual um, assault uh, and child molestation to still be able to, um, um, work in churches that perhaps had not done their due diligence in, in, um, doing background checks and things like that. And they did all that under the excuse, um, that because of the nature of the Southern Baptist Convention, because of the autonomy of churches and, and this voluntary organization that we were in, that they, have no official authority over the churches and that legally they would not be required to be the entity um, that makes people aware of that any more than, than any other entity might be legally required. And if they did take on that responsibility, that it would open up lawsuits to the Southern Baptist convention. Okay. Um, that's what the, the, the report found is that they were, they knowingly had this information um, and were knowingly keeping that information to themselves. Uh, there were also a number of instances where cover-ups didn't seem to involve so much a legal issue, but really seemed to be about um, protecting friends and other ministers who were in the, you know, networks of, of members of the executive committee. 
Um, the report basically says that in their estimation, the decisions um, that were made for the, for the cover-up and everything else were the result of a relatively small group of people um, in the executive committee and their legal counsel, essentially. And so one of the things that the report points out is that there's a large number, 80 or 85, 86, something trustees that are connected to the executive committee. Many of them were asking for information and being told, we don't have any information. None of these things are going on. None of, you know, they covered it up, right? Um, and so it was a relatively small group of people that was involved in that. So that's basically what came out. Um, there's a whole lot to the report. The report's about 150 pages. Um, and it, and it talks about various situations and, and you can go and read it. It's, it's online. You can access it. You can look at it. Um, I can tell you from, I, I read pretty much all of it this week. Um, there are two sections in the middle, one called timeline, one called, uh, maybe survivor reports or something like that that are basically the same content, but it's where the, um, where most of the, the stuff is, right? The most of the kind of things that you would be looking for to say, what kind of things are we talking about here are found in those two sections, which make up a big section, about 100 pages right in the middle of it. Um, but anyway, like I said, last week we came across this passage in First Samuel. So I want to talk about it. Um, I'm going to just talk about the text, but I want you, it's obviously with, with this situation in the Southern Baptist Convention in the background, because um, while in many ways we are very tangentially connected to the SBC, you know, we don't really go, we're not just like rah, 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 SBC, and yet um, it's, it's interesting, just the week before we had been talking about our connection to the SBC, particularly when it connects to, to missions, um, and how, uh, we support that, right? And we want to be connected to, to the mission sending efforts of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, particularly as it relates to religious liberty and, and our being able to freely express, um, our, our worship in this country. So, so while again, you might come here on any given Sunday and go, I don't know if they're really connected to the Southern Baptist Convention or not. We are. And so we want to be kind of upfront about these things and talk about the things that we see here. So let me give you a little bit of, of background and context to the passage that we're reading. So if you're not super familiar with saying for the beginning of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel takes place probably around 40 or 50 years before the birth of King David. Uh, the time of the judges is coming to an end. The time of the kings is about to start, and God has sent the prophet Samuel to essentially lead Israel during this transitional time. So chapter 1 of 1 Samuel tells about Samuel's miraculous conception to his barren mother, um, and then his dedication to the temple, which the mother, his mother had promised, and that was that she would, when the child was, was weaned, send him to the temple to basically be a servant in the temple if God would give her a child. Um, chapter 2, which we're going to be focusing most of our attention on, tells of the sin and the abuse of power that involved the high priest Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And what we notice there immediately is that the sin that was there was two-pronged. There was a sin on the part of Hophni and Phinehas, but there was also a sin on the part of Eli. So 1 Samuel 12, 2, 12. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, and while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, 
and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This was what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Let's skip down to verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. All right, so so we see a twofold sin. First off on the part of Hophni and Phinehas. So the first thing that they are doing is they are taking the fat portion of the meat for themselves. Okay, and so there's a there's sort of a long process that we could talk about of going back and seeing how the sacrificial system worked and how you would offer these sacrifices. But a very short thing to say is this, is that the fat belonged to the Lord, that burning up the fat was part of the offering that you would make. And as the fat burned, the aroma would be a picture of our prayers being lifted to God, and that would be an appropriate sacrifice to God, all right? Except the Hophni and Phineas are basically saying, we want the meat before it gets to that stage. We don't want the meat after it's already half been cooked and the fat has been drained out of it. We want it raw so that we can roast it and make it as, as good as we would like to have it. To the point even where then when the people themselves said, but that's not what God has told us to do, they would say, we don't care. Give it to us the way we want it. And if you don't, we will take it by force. Secondly, this other sin is mentioned in second uh, chapter 22. It says that Hophni and Phinehas um, were taking advantage of the women who were dedicated to the temple. Now, what that is, is it is a, a, a certain kind of situation that a woman could voluntarily enter into where she would dedicate her life to the temple, which would mean she would forego the blessings and the honor of, of having a family and having children, which we know how significant that is in in uh, the, 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 the Jewish faith and they would forego those things essentially to be something like a nun. Okay. It's not exactly core one-to-one correlation, but you know, th- that's a good picture to have in your head to be a nun who is dedicated to the temple. And yet now these women are basically being treated as prostitutes that Hophni and Phineas are, are taking advantage of them, using them sexually, um, to gratify themselves. So those are the specific issues that are going on in the passage. But there is a broader issue that we could say characterizes Hophni and Phinehas. Um, and that is that they saw the ministry as something to serve themselves. All right? Hophni and Phinehas saw the existence of the temple and its ministry there to protect their own comfort, influence, lusts, however you want to talk about. It existed to appease their own appetites. That's the first sin that we see in this passage, a picture of a ministry that thinks that its job is to protect itself, not 
protect the people who have been entrusted to it. That's the first sin. But while their sin is obvious, Eli also is condemned for his response to their sin. And what we see in the passage is that he disapproves of his son's sin. He even confronts them about it. But the reality is, is at the end of the day, he is unwilling to do anything about it. Now, again, we can't comment on his specific motives. Maybe he wanted to avoid scandal. That would be a common response. Maybe he just didn't want to have to do these things and and um, remove his sons from their position. But again, this is the ultimate problem. In both cases, the issue was that the ministry was seen as a place to protect self-interest, not to protect others. I think that's the same basic sin that we see in the situation that we find in the report is that people who are put in a position to protect the people of the Southern Baptist Convention were protecting their own interests. They were saying, this is not my problem. It's not my responsibility. I refuse to do anything that might make it my problem. They were focusing on self They were focusing on the protection of even the institution, maybe. But they were not focusing on protecting the people. The people were being exploited. The Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee has done the same thing. They've decided, in this case, that it was more important to protect their own interests, and particularly the entity of the Southern Baptist Convention, all the while allowing for the fact that that would result in children who were molested, the sexually violent who were allowed to go from church to church um, and, and abuse again. So here's the deal. I don't know what the legal ramifications will be. Honestly, they're probably right that there will be legal repercussions. The denomination will probably be subject to lawsuits because of this thing. Whether or not those lawsuits are won or lost or whatever, I can't say. But here's the thing, it doesn't matter. Because the alternative is to not protect the innocent. The alternative is to say we are not morally responsible for this reprehensible thing that is going on in our midst. All right. And so, again, I don't know how this whole thing is going to play out. I can almost guarantee you that there is going to be legal fallout. All right. And the exact kind of legal fallout that the executive committee said, this is the reason we didn't want to reveal these things. And yet it is the moral thing to do, the right thing to do to protect the innocent over the protection of the institution. So on Friday of this week, they released the list. That was one of the big revelations of the whole thing is for years they had said, no, we can't possibly keep a list. We can't possibly keep a list. And the reality was, is they had been keeping a list the whole time. Um, A list that had the names of, of, of pastors and volunteers and ministers and people all over the the country who served in the Southern Baptist churches who had committed um, offenses. And God is very direct to Eli with the consequences for this. Whatever his motives, whether they were good, bad, or indifferent, whether he wanted to protect the temple or not, whatever, 
The consequence is that God's honor and his offering are being disgraced in the process. So look what he says in verse 28 of chapter 2. This is God talking to Eli. He says, did I choose him, meaning the, pe- the, the, the lineage of Eli, did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear the ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifice and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Right? That's the picture that we have. A picture of the priesthood fattening themselves at the expense of not only the people, but here's what we zoom in on more in this passage. More we zoom in on God's honor. The honor of God is the central point in God's condemnation here. Right? He could focus on justice being done. That would be good and right. He could focus on faithful stewardship. That would be biblical. He could focus on care for survivors. God cares about those who have been cast down. He could address any of those issues. But here, God is concerned first and foremost with the affront to his own glory and worship that this sin represents. Now, here's the deal. That's particularly interesting to me in the context of what I read in that report because of this. What was one of the things that was interesting is that both sides, both those who were sinned against and those who tried to cover up the sin would all often say this. I didn't want to say anything because I was afraid that it would hurt God's kingdom, that it would hurt God's church. The survivors would say I was hesitant to speak up. I kept this a secret for years because I didn't want God to be dishonored by this revelation. I didn't want the church to be hurt by me telling people what had happened to them. Those who covered up the abuse would say, man, it'll look bad for the kingdom if we let this out. It'll look bad for the denomination. It'll look bad for the community. There's so much good work that is done by the Southern Baptist Convention, and we're going to mess it all up if we let these things be found out. And yet... The combination of those things, these two things together, the delay, the hesitancy on one side, the cover-up on the other side, will ultimately result in exactly what both people wanted to avoid. In both cases, God's honor will be diminished. God will be dishonored in the view of the world and of the church and of the lost and of the people in the congregations by our hesitancy to bring sin to light. Does that make sense? The very thing that we want not to happen is the very thing that will happen by us trying to protect God's honor in that way. Because here's what happens. When we keep sin secret, it exacerbates the sin and exacerbates the outcome. In multiple ways, probably more than I'm even going to list here. For one, the delayed revelation makes it hard to get to the truth. We have dealt with that over and over again over the last 
few years in scandal after scandal among politicians and church leaders where something happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It's hard to get to the bottom of something when you are that far removed from it. The second thing it does is it puts others at risk, obviously. When the church doesn't know that these things are going on, it exacerbates the situation because people are allowed to continue their sin in different ways. Another thing it does is it delays or even eliminates justice. One of the things that you'll see when you read this report is that there are a number of cases where nothing was done about those situations because the statute of limitations had run out. And so because of the delay in anybody knowing about them, legally, nothing could be done at that point. The Bible talks about the idea of delayed justice and its effects. For one, it creates skepticism among the faithful. People start to look around and say, I wonder if God's really here because we see all this junk going on at the church and we know about it, yet nothing is being done about it. For other people who are the abusers, who are those who want to sin in these ways, it encourages them in their sin because they say, Nothing's being done. I don't think I'm going to get called. Doesn't seem like anybody is going to do anything about these kind of sins, which is an encouragement for them to act out in those sinful ways. Now, here's the deal. Obviously, obviously, we are far more sympathetic to the person who has been the victim of an assault being hesitant to come forward and say anything. All right. We recognize that there are deep levels of shame, of fear. Oftentimes there may be manipulative threats from the abuser. And sadly, many times, and that's the problem with the cover-up side, when someone comes forward with their account of what happened, if people don't accept that, if they are rejected, if they are not believed, then, and you'll read this in the report if you go to it, Many of the people who were were uh, abused and assaulted said it was more traumatic to be rejected by the people that they reported it to than even the actual abuse itself. That it was worse for the church not to believe them and to do nothing about it than being abused in the first place, which is an incredible statement All right, that we should take to heart. The impulse to protect the Lord's honor is right. But the true way to protect God's honor is for sin to be brought to light and dealt with. That is true on an individual base in your daily personal walk with Christ. And it is true on an institutional large scale basis. So here's the deal. And this is just a little encouragement because I hope none of you ever find yourselves on either side of this. But if you ever find yourself either as someone who has been abused or as one who has heard the the report of abuse from someone who has been abused, don't wait. Okay? Don't wait to bring it to light. Don't try to figure it out on your own. Okay. Don't say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to cause waves. I don't want to get anybody trouble. I don't want to hurt this. I don't want to shame this. I don't want to, it's not your job. Okay. 
bring it to someone whose job it is to figure those things out. I've personally had to be in that situation in, in, in ministry where something was reported to me and I had to say, I don't know if this is true. I don't know if you're lying. I don't know if this is what way it worked. It's not my job to get to the bottom of those things. I've got to go tell the authorities. And so the authorities in my case were the pastoral leadership at my church and the police. And put it in their court. Obviously, there was still more work that I had to do as a minister in that context. But there are certain things that I'm not qualified for. There's no way I can do an investigative thing and, and get to the bottom of those things. And it's not what I'm supposed to do. That There are other entities that are, that's, that's your job. It's not your job either. Bring it to light. Tell somebody. If you see something, say something. God is not honored by our silence. And in the end, it'll only exacerbate the consequences, of which there are many. And we see that in this passage. The fallout, and there should be fallout for this kind of sin, is wide, far-reaching. So look what it costs in this passage. Look at verse 30. The first thing that it costs, and it should cost, and we have talked about this repeatedly in eldership, men's leadership meeting, it should cost the permanent revoking of a calling. Verse 30, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall be not an old man in your house forever. The only one of you who I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign unto you. Both of them shall die on the same day. All right. This is what we notice about that passage. God has basically said, hey, Eli and your family, you're going to be priests forever. And then he says, but not anymore. It's a weird thing to happen a little bit because typically we think of God saying when he makes a promise, he, he keeps that promise. Okay. But he points out to the fact he says, but this was a conditional promise. When you honor me, I will honor you. And if you despise me, then you will be despised. And so he basically says, I'm cutting you off from your ministry to the temple. In fact, he does a lot more than that. He cuts them off from life. He cuts them off from prosperity. He cuts them off from old age and blessing. Their calling is revoked. Here's the deal. Sin like this, sexual assault, adultery, molestation, should be the end of your ministry career. It shouldn't be our first instinct to try to save the influence of those people, no matter how well-known or respected they are. There's lots of jobs you can do, 
Okay. The world needs ditch diggers. All right. If, if you have committed your entire life and education and vocational life to the ministry and you have forfeited it through your sin, that's it. You say, Ash, is there no way back? And I would say pretty much. I won't say there's no possibility in some certain circumstance with certain things. I won't maybe go that far, but I'm saying pretty much, yeah. There should be no circumstance. No amount of time should go by. No amount of repentance should bring you to a point where you can be a minister again. Go a little further with it. There is no such thing as an unqualified person who is called to ministry. Does that make sense? There is no such thing as an unqualified person who is called to ministry. This is what I mean by that. If you are disqualified for ministry, then you're not called to it. That's the deal. Because usually we see it some other way. We say, no, 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 no. I had this calling that existed above these things. I messed up, but I got to get back to that calling. No, you don't. If you have disqualified yourself, you are not called. That's the deal. God doesn't need to do background checks. All right. God knows your heart. God knows what you've done. If you are not qualified, then you are not called. And if at one point you were qualified and you were in ministry and you disqualified yourself, then you are no longer called to the ministry. The sins of Eli's family cost them everything. Not only their current ministry, but any opportunity for future ministry as well. That's the first consequence of this sin. The second consequence of it, not only a revoking of calling, but a humiliation of God's people. That's the second thing. Lots and lots of people suffer because of the sins of these three men. When we go on to read the stories in chapter 2, 3, and 4, this is what we find. 34,000 Israelite soldiers are killed in a conflict that is the result of judgment for this sin. By the same token... 47,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention will suffer for the sin and cover-up that has been revealed. People who were not directly connected to it, people who are faithfully serving God in their communities, will have to suffer the humiliation and degradation of this event in their churches all over the country, all over the world. It is likely that this event will for some people be the straw that breaks the camel's back where they walk away from the faith, walk away from the church, never trust the clergy ever again. Moreover, many people in the world will use this as an opportunity to attack the church, not because of any particular care for the victims, certainly not for any honor of God, but because of their hatred for God and hatred for his church and a hatred and a desire to see that church destroyed. And this will be their ammunition. Romans warns us and talks about the idea. It says you boast in the law 
You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's talking about hypocrites. He's talking about people who say one thing and go out and do another. And he says, the lost are mocking God and mocking his church because of your actions. That is a necessary consequence for this kind of sin. The third thing, and this is something that I don't think anybody ever thinks about before they abuse somebody or before they act in any self-centered, self-gratifying kind of way. The destruction that will it will bring on the abuser's family. Another consequence of this is that it will destroy the family of the one who has been the abuser. Again, another reason why we hide sin, another reason why we cover it up sometimes is for this very reason. We say, man, I don't want to put that person's family through these things, right? This this minister has abused or done something, but I don't want to put his wife and his children through the heartache of, of this being revealed. So I'm going to keep it quiet. We're not going to, we're not going to tell anybody. We're going to cover this up. Here's the deal. The hard reality is there is no alternative. Hear that? When you sin in this way, when anybody sins in this way, there's no way we can protect your family from the consequences of it. Your wife, your children, your parents are going to have to go through it. Eli and his sons Sin leads to their own death and the defeat of the nation. But we read about the even more tragic outcome in chapter 4. In verse 19, it says, Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, The women attending her said, do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. So what we see in this passage is is Phineas's wife very quickly becomes a widow. Her heart is broken and her child is orphaned in very quick succession as a result of this sin. Nobody can protect your family from that. Okay? Men, nobody can protect your family from that. If there is ever a point in your life where you are thinking, I could indulge this, I could seek after this, um, and it'll stay a secret, it will not. And it will destroy your life, and it will destroy the lives of your family. We can... Attempt, and I pray that we would come alongside the abuser's family to try to assist and comfort, right? To try to, to try to do what we can, but there's not going to be any ultimate refuge. Much like the church, they will have to bear the humiliation of that event and even more deeply. So to summarize, when the servant of God takes his calling lightly, 
and uses it to indulge his own lust or greed or thirst for power or to protect self or whatever. Instead of protecting the people that he has been called to serve, the outcome is disgrace, defeat, and death. Because that's what sin does. That's what it does. So you say, Ash, where's the hope? Where do we, in the midst of all this mess, where do we find hope for these things? Well, we see it in this passage in at least two things, I think. The first and secondary, the first point, but the secondary place we find hope is in God's continual faithfulness to his people. So an article was written this week, um, and, and one of the things it talked about in it was it, it, it talked about the mythic origin of the conservative resurgence of, in the Southern Baptist Convention. So back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there was this turn from liberal, liberalism back to um, um, conservative, faithful belief in, in Christ and in the Word of God. And um, that resurgence was orchestrated. Two men were the architects of it in a way. Well, this was already known, but this report reiterated that those two men are both now disgraced. One of them has um, uh, is is in the midst of accusation of of child molestation. The other one was an institutional leader who did not take seriously an accusation of sexual assault, tried to cover it up, and so both these two men have um, entered into that situation, right? And this, and the person who wrote this article basically said, you know, this uh, this myth of the conservative resurgence and the myth of, of these things that have happened. And here's the deal. I think he's wrong. Um, I don't think it's a myth. And the reason is because he's focusing on the wrong side of it. He's focusing on the story of the resurgence of the Southern Baptist Convention being among these two elite men um, bureaucrats in, in the Southern Baptist Convention being the ones that orchestrated this thing. But I don't think that's true. The conservative resurgence happened because rank and file people of God at the grassroots level said, um, we are not going to let the unbelief and the liberality and the godlessness of bureaucrats in institutional positions dictate what we believe. Um, we don't believe what they believe. They have started to say these things and act these ways and purport, like promote these views. We don't agree with those things. It wasn't these two men who were, were the, behind the conservative resurgence. It was the Southern Baptist churches at a grassroots level that did that. What I would say is that a few lawyers and a handful of, of Hophneys and Phineases and Elis do not determine the identity of the Southern Baptist Convention. They are not kings. And so what they have done is a disgrace to us, but it is not a poison. In fact, what we find is it's the cure, right? The fact that these things have been revealed, while difficult, is the medicine for our convention. The legacy of the Southern Baptist Convention is not in those kind of people, okay? The legacy of the Southern Baptist Convention is in this room. The legacy of the Southern Baptist Convention is in people who have literally given their lives to protect children. People like Lottie Moon, 
who literally died of starvation because she was giving her own meager food so that children in her community wouldn't starve to death. That's the legacy of the Southern Baptist Convention. Billy Graham is the legacy of the Southern Baptist Convention. Someone who his whole career said, I am not ever going to be alone with a woman or a child so that, A, I am not tempted in any way, and B, no false accusation can be made against me. A decision that he was mocked and derided for. People who hold to that position today are mocked and derided for. And all I can say at the end of reading that report was this. Man, I wish any of those men on that report had decided at some point to never be alone with a woman or a child in a room somewhere. And you might say, Ash, that would have changed their hearts. And you're exactly right. The wickedness may have still been into their hearts, but you know what? it certainly would have saved a lot of devastated lives. Here's what God promises in this passage. We've read it, but you may have not noticed as we went by. He said, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be not an old man in your house, okay? And then he says this, then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. Okay, notice what that is. That is a promise that God says, I am not rejecting my people. I will continue to work and bless my people. But you, faithless priest, you, unrighteous leader, you will look on with envy to say, I could have been a part of what God was doing, and yet I chose my own sin. God's not giving up on his people. He's not giving up on the Southern Baptist Convention. He's not giving up on the people of the churches at the Southern Baptist Convention. God will build his church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. The gospel will continue to be preached. People will be loved and cared for. And again, I think there is hope in saying this revelation didn't come from outside the Southern Baptist Convention. It came from inside the Southern Baptist Convention. It came from Southern Baptist a year ago saying, we don't know what the truth is but somebody needs to get to the bottom of it. We need to have some kind of committee figure out who's telling the truth because we got leaders on both sides telling us different things and we don't know who to believe, okay? That didn't happen from outside the convention. That happened from inside the convention. I find hope in that. God is going to continue to be faithful to his people, but here is the main hope that we find. It's in verse 35 of chapter 2. God has revoked the calling of Eli and his high priests, his sons. But then in verse 35, he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful high priest, a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Who is that faithful priest that God is going to anoint? It's his son, Jesus Christ. Our hope is ultimately that we are not a church that worships the Southern Baptist Convention. We don't worship the executive committee. 
We don't worship any even of our heroes that we rightly or wrongly honor. We don't worship pastors. We don't worship deacons and elders. We worship a faithful high priest who God has given to us, who does perfectly what God has called him to do. A person who is after God's own heart and God's own mind because he is God in human flesh. That person is Jesus Christ. He's the one who we honor. He is the one who we have hope in. Again, men will fail you. This will not be the last betrayal by someone in a position of authority. It won't be. I hope we never see one again this big in our lifetime, but don't count on it because men are going to fail us, but Christ never will. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. What I would ask is this, is, is um, I don't think this is the case, um, but but was interesting in the media cycle is that, and, and maybe rightly so, is that this story has not gotten as much attention as I would have thought it would. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, because many of the revelations, honestly, had come out last year. And so this was just a confirmation of those things. The real reason, though, is because of the events that took place in Texas, okay, um, which just seemed to, in a, in, a, in a sort of way, blatantly, um, honestly, demonstrate the principles that we're seeing in our own convention, right? To see somebody who blatantly um, has no will or concern for um, the lives of the innocent and yet seeks after their own um, aggrandizement and gratification. But here's the deal. I don't think it will, but I hope that that's what that doesn't produce is people forgetting about it, right? Um, fortunately, and I'm sure they timed it this way, um, the Southern Baptist Convention convention um, is happening in a couple of weeks in California. And so um, I'm sure that this will be a central part of, of the discussion um, and the things that come to, to the floor um, during this. It's, it's another interesting thing to say this is, I don't know if you guys remember this, but the last time we did our sex abuse prevention training was right before the, I believe the, the Houston Chronicle released its big report that basically was the, the flashpoint for this whole thing. It was the thing that got people asking questions and talking about it. Um, we had our sexual abuse prevention training already scheduled, and then all of this stuff came out, and it made that all the more, like, it zoomed in on the importance of it. And guess what? It's happened again, all right? We planned this event, we planned this training, and then between the time we planned it and before we could actually have it done, this massive revelation comes out, okay? That should, it should focus our attention, okay? It should focus our attention that these issues are widespread, um, that there is no church that is immune to them, okay? In a sense, our church is all the more susceptible to them because we have so many children, okay? You know what? Churches that have no children don't have to worry about some of these issues as much. We do, which is all the more reason why this is so important, why we're, why we're going to do this training. It, it's not the end of our training. There will be other things that we'll talk about over the coming weeks and months to just help us to be prepared to um, man, try to keep 
any and all opportunity for this stuff at bay. So what I want you to do is as we just go to the Lord in a time of prayer, um, that you would um, pray for all of it. That you would pray for the survivors, um, the people who have been um, abused and mistreated by the abusers and by those in authority who covered these things up. That you would pray for our churches as they deal with the fallout of these things. That you would play, pray for the Southern Baptist Convention. Because again, man, I think the Southern Baptist Convention is a good thing. It has done lots of good and will continue to do lots of good. If it ceased to exist tomorrow, the world would be worse for it. So we need to pray for it as an entity. Um, that God would continue to use it. Um, that this would not... Uh, affect it to the extent where it was unable um, to do the good work that, that God has called us to do. That you would be in prayer in general for the state of our world. Okay. Um, you know, again, as uh, taking the, the, the picture of, of Texas, um, obviously as soon as, as that event happened, people started talking about gun control. It happens every time. Anytime there's a shooting, people talk about gun control. Okay. Everybody's got their different opinions on gun control. But here's what people don't talk about is why. Why does this stuff happen? What is different about our world from 20 or 30 or 40 years ago where people didn't just walk into places for no reason and kill innocent people for no reason, right? Why? What has changed in our society in the last 20 or 30 years that makes that a tragically common occurrence now. That's something that people aren't talking about. I think we know the reason for that. And the reason is, is because we have a world that has no hope, that is has no vision of a greater truth, an ultimate reality, or even an eternal dwelling place, whether that be heaven or hell. People have lost that completely. And in the midst of that nihilistic hopelessness, people do all kinds of wicked, depraved, senseless, irrational, godless things. So maybe in our time of prayer, we will also pray for our nation. That we would pray all the more how important it is for us to take the message of the gospel to the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we pray for our nation. We pray for our denomination. We pray for our churches. We pray for our leaders. We pray for our survivors. God, we pray for our children.
We ask for your blessing and protection over all of these. God, we ask that you use the events of the past week, God, to bring us to God, they have brought us to humiliation. They have brought us to sorrow. God, we ask that you would use them to chasten us, to clarify what is important in our hearts, to solidify the truths that we claim to believe in and say, uphold the world. God, we ask that you would use these things to confirm and affirm the centrality of you and your son and your word in our lives. God, that they are the only hope for a lost and dying world. God, bless us. God, use this revelation, this report, to cleanse your house so that it would live in faithfulness and service to you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing a closing song.
came in. Uh, sorry, I kept so long, um, but I knew I was. Um, I knew that it was just going to go long. Uh, so um, glad you're here today. Um, hope you have a good Memorial Day weekend. Um, here's the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.